If you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, reading through verse 11. And we, uh, as we do, just a reminder that this is God's Word to us, inspired by His Holy Spirit. Like we just confessed, the Spirit has spoken through the prophets. He's spoken through His prophets and apostles and inspired this very Word to us. So let's read it together. This is the Word of God, beginning in verse 6. Speaking of the apostles and Jesus, it says, So when they had come together, the apostles asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, before you left, after you had resurrected, after you had spoken with your apostles, you made this promise, a promise to one day send your spirit, the comforter. You said, I still have many things to say to you, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. This morning, Jesus, we need your spirit of truth, your spirit of power, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would guide us this morning in this teaching, because we believe your words are the word of life. So we ask, Holy Spirit, our comforter, counselor, keeper, would you lead us this morning through the scriptures? We ask that you would help us to learn. We ask that you would give us hope. We ask that you would focus our minds and our eyes this morning, turning them away from the concerns of earth and giving us eyes for heaven. And we ask simply that you would turn our darkness into light as we seek to walk by faith, not by sight. And we ask this King Jesus, because you reign and rule as we speak. And so we pray in your name and all God's people said, amen. Well, uh, it's great to see so many new faces this morning. Uh, I see plenty of people that I don't recognize. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Daniel Nealon, and I'm a pastor here at Deer Creek Church. Just a little bit about me. Uh, I've been married now for 11 years, married to my wife, Hannah. Um, the first service clapped at that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> We have four children, Eli, he's our eight-year-old third grader, and McLean, she's our uh, six-year-old first grader, and Jane and Annie, our twin four-year-olds. Uh, if this is your first Sunday at Deer Creek, this is something that we do every time that we gather. We worship God in the central part of our worship service is we hear from God's word. And what we do at Deer Creek is we like to study consecutively through books of the Bible. This fall, we're studying through the book of Acts, which we just read from. Last week, we said the book of Acts, if you had to give it a title, it is the continuing work of King Jesus. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And the reason we like to take books and study consecutively through them, the reason we do that is because it's a little bit of a shift in the way that 
we really understand the Bible. Oftentimes, if you have a Bible app or if you're doing kind of scripture studies on your own, what we can do is we can often look at topics of the Bible, right? We can often look at what does the Bible say about anxiety or what does the Bible say about marriage and divorce? What does the Bible say about fear? What does the Bible say about stress? And those are legitimate ways to interact with scripture, to approach it topically, because that's like asking questions of God, right? It's like saying, God, what do you have to say about stress? How should I handle it? What do you have to say about my marriage? What's my purpose for marriage? How do I thrive in my marriage? How do I keep my marriage flourishing? God, what do you say about anxiety? Should I be anxious? Why am I anxious? How can I not be anxious? Those are legitimate ways of approaching the Bible, and it's appropriate at time to ask those questions. But when you teach through the Bible, and we're going to see this as we go through Acts, is what often happens is a fundamental shift happens. Instead of us asking God what we're concerned about, when we teach through books of the Bible, what happens is we allow God to tell us what he's concerned about. And when you do that, this fundamental shift happens. And it's interesting, when you do that, what we often find is the things we are so concerned about, the things we want, the things that occupy our mind, our space, our time, our concerns, those things oftentimes in the light of Scripture, the Word of God, actually are seen as being very small, whereas the concerns of God become very large. And when you look at the book of Acts, this fundamental shift actually plays out in the lives of the apostles in Jesus' departing scene here. You see it explicitly in verse 6. Pick up your Bible again. Remember, at this point, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's appeared to over 500 people at this point. And he's meeting one last time with his apostles. They've all come together, and the apostles have this question for Jesus. This topic that they want to address this topic that they want Jesus, this concern they want him to speak to, they say it in verse 6. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's their pressing question. If they had one question to ask Jesus before he departed, this was it. And it's a legitimate question, too. Because after all, if you were to look through the Old Testament, God throughout the Old Testament scriptures had sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet coming to his people. And he, the, every prophet talked about a coming kingdom that would one day be the kingdom of God where God's kingdom would be established on earth as he reigns over all of creation. In fact, if you look at maybe one of the most notable prophets in the Old Testament, his name was Daniel. Daniel... In the year 540 BC, he had a vision, this remarkable vision as God appeared to him, and it was a vision of four beasts. One beast was a lion with eagle's wings. The other beast that he saw in this vision was a bear raised up on one side, ready to pounce, ready to attack. The other was a leopard, and this leopard had four wings and four heads. And then lastly, he sees this terrifying beast with iron teeth. And Daniel sees this vision and he's wondering, what, what on earth am I seeing here? And God actually sends a messenger, an angel, and tells Daniel, Daniel, this is what you're seeing. These four great beasts, Daniel chapter 7, verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. These four great kings, and 
kingdoms, the, the angel says they're eventually going to fall. He says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess that kingdom forever, forever and ever. An eternal kingdom with an eternal king, not like the kingdoms and the kings that went before. That's what's coming, D Daniel. Just wait. My kingdom is going to come. And then, remarkably, in the next scene, Daniel sees a vision of what this coming king will look like. He says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples... All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That king and that kingdom are coming, Daniel. Just wait. Those four kingdoms that I spoke about earlier that you saw a vision of, those are going to fall, but this eternal king, this eternal kingdom is coming just way all of the prophets spoke about this. Jesus spoke about this. Jesus, his very first words of public ministry, he said, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. Meaning, the four beasts, they, they've fallen. The four kingdoms, right? The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. All of these kingdoms had risen from the earth, and the time is fulfilled. And now Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right in front of you. Repent and believe in that good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. The eternal kingdom of God is here and I'm the king. That's what Jesus is saying. Very first words of ministry. So the apostles now, back to the book of Acts. This is the question and topic of their deepest concern. They want to know, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's their most pressing concern. And on the surface, it's a legitimate question. It's a valid concern. But when you actually zoom in on this question, you zoom in a little bit closer, you see that this question is plagued with faulty assumptions. One commentator, he even wrote, there are so many things wrong in this question that there are more errors than words in the question itself. But you've got to zoom in to see that. Look again, this time zoom in. Notice faulty assumption number one. You see it in verse six. Jesus, his apostles say, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, a thousand years really before Jesus, Israel was the greatest empire in the ancient Near East. Under King David, Israel was a powerhouse, military dominance. King David, in fact, ruled and dominated every single kingdom that was around the area of Israel. He defeated the Philistines and then all of the Bites, right? The Moabites, the Zobahites, the Hamathites, the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, and then as my kids say, the Mosquito Bites, right? <laughs> It's not just children who laugh at that, apparently. <laughs> Under King David, Israel was unified. One powerful kingdom, all 12 tribes in unison under David's leadership. And then after David came Solomon. And there you see the influence, the power, the majesty just grow from there. The kingdom finally had a temple. 
for God's people to worship. Solomon's military grew. Solomon's wealth grew. Solomon's power grew. His influence grew. There's even a story, so much so, that there was a queen. Her name was the Queen of Sheba, south of Israel, almost as far south as a person in that day could have conceived of. She hears of Solomon's glory, his splendor, his majesty, the, the remarkable nature of his kingdom. And she comes to Solomon and witnesses with her eyes the splendor of this earthly kingdom. And she comes to uh, Solomon and says, the report was true. What I had heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom and your greatness but I didn't believe the reports until I came with my own eyes to see it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the reports that I had heard. That's the kingdom that the apostles have in mind. Yeah, we want that kind of kingdom, Jesus. A kingdom restored. A kingdom of earthly wealth, just like it was in the days of Solomon. A kingdom of earthly military dominance, just like it was when David was king, a kingdom of cultural influence and cultural power that people from every end of the earth hear about. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus? Will you do that? That's the most pressing question that they have. It's their most vital concern, a restored kingdom of earthly power. You hear echoes of this today, don't you? hear echoes of this question up to the present day. There was actually even a best-selling evangelical author. He uh, wrote this book in 2022, so just last year. And you hear him throughout this book, page after page, echoing the concerns of the apostles here. He writes, we in the United States are in desperate times. We are being overrun by Marxist ideologies, critical race theory, widespread sexual immorality, and government policies that threaten religious liberty. Just an aside here, really briefly. If your view of the world, if your view of society is always a view of society where all of your concerns, all of your fears are exclusively focused on one side of the political spectrum... You should take a step back and just ask yourself, wait, am I advocating for the kingdom of God here? Am I advocating for a particular political philosophy and ideology? But that's just a digression. I go back to the quote. He says, quote, desperate times call for desperate measures. The church must work to put candidates in power who will enact policies that help people. This means Christ followers may need to vote for someone whom others may criticize for being guilty of this or that. This means the church and its pastors need to be concerned about more than being a pillar and buttress of truth, but must also be the spearhead of political activism. Can you hear the echoes? This is the apostles' question to Jesus in 20th century form or 21st century form. Jesus earthly, this world, cultural, political power. Are you going to bring that? That's what we want. And that's only one faulty assumption. They want earthly power. Faulty assumption number two. Zoom in again. Look at verse six. When do they want this power? Well, they want it now. Verse six, Lord, will you at this time, right now, restore the kingdom to Israel? It's been long enough. 
Jesus, more than a thousand years have passed. Daniel came. That was the year 530-ish. We've endured military weakness, financial scarcity, exile, persecution. We've faced all of these things and more cultural and international humiliation. Will you restore your kingdom now? It has to be the time. Don't wait. Please bring it to us now. This reminds me of my daughter, Annie. Mentioned her earlier. We do this thing in our household where we do daddy-daughter dates, and we try and do these things once a month. Last month was McLean. It was her opportunity to do a daddy-daughter date. We went to Cheesecake Factory. She got a slice of cheesecake, 1,500 calories. She ate it all. <laughs> the month before that, it was Jane. So Annie had been three months in, the wake, in, the, in, the, uh, in waiting because the last time we did a daddy-daughter date, uh, Annie and me, we went to the trampoline park which she calls the jump place. So she's anxious. She just heard about uh, McLean's recent daddy-daughter date. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, McLean's recent daddy-daughter date. And so she just can't wait. Every day that I come home from work, she says, daddy-daughter date, daddy-daughter date, daddy-daughter date. Can we go on a daddy-daughter date? I don't want just a daddy-daughter date tomorrow. I want a daddy-daughter date now. It's like living with Violet from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, (laughs) right? I want it now. So I asked Annie, because I'd never seen this, this impatience before, this angst of why Annie wanted to do this. So I said, Annie, sweetie, we will. I promise we're going to go on the date. But what's with all the angst? What's with all the impatience? Why do you want to go so bad? And I thought, you know, Annie was going to say, well, of course, Dad. You, I just want to be with you. <laughs> I want to spend time with you and have it, just your attention for an afternoon. That's not what she said. But she said, Dad, of course, you know why. You buy me candy. <laughs> Using me for Sour Patch Kids. That's the apostles, right? They want it now. Jesus, we've waited long enough. Come on, now. And it's a good impulse. It's actually a really good impulse because as all the prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet, when they talked about the kingdom of God coming The hope was that with this kingdom, there would be immense blessings that would cover all of creation. Isaiah talks about this most explicitly. He said, when God's kingdom comes, it'll look like this. God is actually speaking through Isaiah and says, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things, that is things of this world, pain, the suffering, the angst, the turmoil, the weakness, all of those things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. I will rejoice and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the world the sound of weeping or the cries of distress. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. That promise is pretty special to many of you in this room. Or an old man who does not fill out his days, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. For their days will be like the tree. And there will be my chosen as long as I shall enjoy them and they shall enjoy the work of their lands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. 
the apostles here, they want that kind of kingdom, the full expression of God's blessing, the day Daniel, the day Isaiah spoke of, a promise of a world without weeping or distress or premature death, a world of abundance and flourishing and great blessing. Jesus, bring that now. Would you bring it now? Bring us this restored earthly political kingdom right now on earth. We want those blessings for us. And then third faulty assumption, you see it again in verse six. Who do they want these earthly blessings now for? Well, it says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to who? To Israel. Restore the kingdom to us, our people. Restore it to Israel, your covenant people, no one else. We want it now, just like it was in the days of old. Won't you bring that now? So you see on the surface, right? It's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate question, valid concerns, even some good impulses in this question. But zoomed in, the question is plagued with faulty assumption after faulty assumption. They want earthly power right now for me, for us, for my own. And here's what Jesus does. He takes that question... And he brings a fundamental shift to their perspective. Jesus takes their greatest concern, what they believe is their most pressing problem, and he actually rebukes them. He rebukes them first. Remember, they want a kingdom of earthly power to put the right candidate in office, to spearhead political activism. Jesus says, hey, you want a restored kingdom of earthly power? Let me shift that because my kingdom is actually completely different. My power looks different in my kingdom as well. He says, verse 8, this is the kind of power I'm going to give you. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power by my spirit to witness. Power by Jesus' spirit to witness. Jesus says, I'm the king. <laughs> I'm the king. In just a moment's time, you are going to see me ascend to heaven. I'm going to sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, the place of power over all creation. You will see my majesty. I'm going to reign there and rule over all things. And I will pour out my Holy Spirit on you. And once you receive that power, you will witness to me. That's the power I'm talking about. This is instructive. If you have the book of Acts in front of you, Flip through the book of Acts and ask yourself, where do you see political power in these apostles? You actually see none of it. They receive zero political, zero cultural, zero religious power. In fact, they receive the opposite. They receive political persecution from the Roman Empire. They receive religious hostility from the Jewish leaders. They receive cultural ostracism from the Greco-Roman world and Jewish synagogue system. Peter and James... Two of Jesus' earliest followers and closest followers, they are censored for teaching about Jesus and they're arrested as witnesses to Jesus. Stephen, who was one of the first deacons of the church, Stephen is stoned to death as a witness to Jesus. And then Paul, 
The Apostle Paul, maybe the most prominent witness in all of the Bible, the, the most prominent witness to Jesus, he faces imprisonment, countless beatings, often, to, often near death. Paul writes this in a letter, five times I have received 40 lashes lest one. Three times he is beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times being shipwrecked. I faced danger from robbers, my own people, Gentiles, city leaders, and false Christians alike. The apostles have no earthly power. No, it's a power to witness, a power to witness to Jesus, a power to preach and teach about King Jesus, who alone has power to save and redeem human beings from a greater power, the power of sin, Satan, and death. That is Jesus' rebuke. You want earthly power? I'm going to give you spiritual power because my kingdom is not of this world. Apostles, you can imagine Jesus saying this. Apostle, <laughs> you think your most pressing concern is Rome? You think your most uh, deepest, most pressing concern is Caesar or political weakness? That is so narrow-sighted. That is so short-sighted. Don't you realize Caesar can enslave you for 72 and a half years or however long the average lifespan was during that day. Rome can oppress you as long as you live. Culture and society, they can persecute you as long as you have breath in your lungs. But that is so short-sighted. Don't you realize sin means to enslave you eternally? Don't you realize the prince of darkness means to enslave you into the very pit of destruction? You might suffer on this earth for a brief time, but there are eternal torments beyond this life. It is so short-sighted to look into things of this world. You don't need an earthly king. You don't need an earthly kingdom. You need me, Jesus, the one who has the power to save spiritually from all your spiritual enemies, sin, Satan, and death. That's the concern of my kingdom. And I'm giving you power by my spirit to witness to that reality, to witness to me. That word witness, incidentally, it's, it's the Greek word martyros, martyr, that's the kind of power Jesus is talking about because that's the power of Jesus who, though he was the king of the kingdom of God, God himself in flesh, became nothing. He suffered and died taking the form of a martyr. And it is by that act of sacrifice on the cross that Jesus actually sets people free from slavery to sin and death and the bondage of Satan. He sets captives free from the grips of eternal hell. That's the power of Jesus, a power to save us from all our enemies that are spiritual and mean to destroy us eternally. I know some of you may be hearing this, and I've heard this critique before. It's kind of a fair critique, but I want to push back on it a little bit. Some would say, well, it, if we just concern ourselves about those things, don't we run the threat of being like so spiritually minded we're no earthly good? Anybody ever heard that? Friends, let me just push back on that and ask, do you know that person who struggles in that way? Do you know the person who is just so spiritually concerned, so pious, so pie in the sky, looking to the things of eternity that they are just unfazed, unconcerned, unstressed, unanxious about the things of earth? Do you know that person? 
I've never met that person. I'm a pastor. I actually get paid to be spiritual and I'm not that person. Right? I think the problem is actually the exact opposite. We are so earthly minded that we become completely dull to the spiritual good. I just think of myself. I think of the concerns of my life. Here's my thought process through this week. My concerns are rising inflation, tuition costs going up. Can we afford higher education? What about paying for three weddings? Why did we have twins, Hannah? We need, <laughs> we need a water heater. I need to install a water heater. We need a new couch. Kids spill chocolate milk on the couch. Why did we buy a new couch? This is why we can't have nice things. Will my kids be good at sports? Will my kids get a good enough grades? I installed the water heater incorrectly. That could actually be pretty dangerous. What will we do for spring break? Will we stay home for spring break? Will we go away for spring break? What if it snows on spring break? We could go on vacation with my in-laws for spring break. Do I really want to go on vacation with my in-laws for spring break? Will the Broncos be 1-1 one one this week? Will the Chiefs be 0-2 this week? Will this be the end of Aaron Rodgers' career? It's ironic, isn't it? Maybe the reason we ask God questions today, like, God, what do you have to say about anxiety? What do you have to say about stress? What do you have to say about fear? What do you have to say to me right now and my concerns? Maybe the reason we have those questions is precisely because we have become so earthly minded that we are dull to spiritual good. Jesus says, you do not need a restored kingdom here now politically No, you need my spiritual kingdom, my power to save and redeem, my power to save you from your spiritual enemies. That's my concern. There was a pastor in the early church. He he understood this. His name was Polycarp. He was a pastor in Smyrna, which is modern-day Turkey. And Polycarp served Jesus for 86 years, and then he was finally arrested by Roman authorities He's arrested and brought into this large stadium where he's placed in the middle of the stadium. And the governor over that area of the Roman Empire looks at Polycarp and says, Polycarp, I have wild beasts here. I have wild beasts. And unless you change your mind, renounce Jesus and recant the name of King Jesus, unless you do that, I am unleashing these wild beasts against you. And Polycarp looks at the governor and he says, I can't do that. Jesus has not denied me for 86 years. And you expect me to deny him now? So the governor insisted. He said, Polycarp, if you don't recant, I will have to burn you to death at the stake. If you think so lightly of the wild beast, what have you say to that? And Polycarp responded by saying, the fire you threaten me with cannot go on burning for very long. After a while, that fire goes out. But what you're unaware of are the flames of future judgment and everlasting torment which are in store for all the ungodly. Why do you go on wasting time? It's not me who has to recant. It's you. You need to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the only way that a person can enter the kingdom of God. Jesus rebukes his apostles. You want an earthly kingdom? Earthly power, that's your concern. Let me shift that. Here's my concern. My spiritual kingdom, my triumph over all your spiritual enemies, my life, death, resurrection, and coming ascension to pay for your eternally punishable sins. Repent and turn to me for the forgiveness of sins through my sacrifice on the cross. But that's only one part of Jesus' rebuke. He 
actually rebukes his apostles again. Remember, their assumption was that they wanted an earthly kingdom right now. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? My, you know if you have kids, they ask this question regularly. If, if Jesus is king, then why does this earth not look like his kingdom? If Jesus is king and he, he promises no more weeping, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, why is there weeping, sorrow, pain, and sin? Why miscarriage? Why job loss? Why all the tragedy, Jesus? Why the tragedy? I'm getting a haircut the other day and my wife took a picture of my bald spot that's forming in the back of my head. Why the tragedy? Make this earth correct. Right now. Well, Jesus fundamentally shifts these assumptions as well. Verse 7. This is his strongest rebuke. He says to them, it's not for you to know that. It's not for you to know Times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority. That's Jesus' way of saying, you have to wait. You have to wait. Be sure of this. I'm king. And Jesus says, in a moment, you're going to see me glorified. I am going to be vindicated as the king of heaven and ascend to the right hand of God. And be sure of this. A day is coming. The Father has set a day. It is coming. He has set a day when the kingdom will come in full. But be sure of this. It is not right now, and you have to wait. On that day, just like Isaiah said, there will be no more weeping. There will be no more fear or death or sadness, but you have to wait. And in verse 9, Jesus actually demonstrates this teaching to his apostles. Verse 9, once Jesus had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And, and realize, this is not just any cloud. This is God's glory cloud. The same cloud that led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. The same cloud that descended on Jesus on his Mount of Transfiguration. This is God's visible, glorious manifestation taking Jesus into heaven to reign in majesty. Then in verse 10, Luke says, The apostles were gazing into heaven, and at that moment, behold... Two men, these are angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way you saw him go. The expectation that people had during the time of Jesus was that when the king comes, he'll bring everything now, all at once. That Vision that Daniel saw, the, the thought was, yeah, the king's going to come and everything will be better. But Jesus shifts this expectation. He says, no, 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 there are two comings, two. In fact, the whole reason Jesus came in his first coming was to redeem and prepare a people forgiven for his second coming. If you've ever read the books, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the second book or third book. I can't remember which one. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Which one is it? First or second <laughs> or third. <laughs> the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lucy, Peter, and Susan. They're in Narnia. They've been traveling in for some time and they meet with Mr. Beaver. And they've heard the name Aslan. They've kind of started to wrap their mind around who this is. But they ask Mr. Beaver, who is Aslan? What is he like? Who is he? And the, and Mr. Beaver looks at him and says, you don't know? 
It's the one all the ancient prophets and Proverbs talked about. It's where this saying comes from. Wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. When Aslan comes in sight, wrong is going to be made right. In Jesus' first coming, his first sighting, that's precisely what Jesus did. Jesus took the power of sin and evil within us, and he made it right, suffering and dying on the cross, being crucified so that we might not have to suffer and die at the hands of a holy God. The king himself laid down his life to free his people. He destroyed on that day on the cross the power and the penalty of sin and darkness. At his second coming, his second sighting, he will complete his work. In his second sighting, King Jesus will destroy the presence of sin. He will return to destroy every remaining remnant of sin and darkness. He will destroy the dominion of Satan. What he began at his first coming will be complete on that last day when he descends just as he ascended into heaven. And the Bible's clear on this. Jesus makes it clear himself. He said there will be two types of people on that day. There will be one group of people who sought forgiveness and salvation in King Jesus, who believed him when he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the king. And those people, they will enter God's kingdom, the one spoken about by Isaiah, and they will experience an eternity in his kingdom without weeping, without tears, without pain, sadness, or sorrow. But there is another group and on that day, when King Jesus returns, those who did not believe, they will continue enslaved to sin, enslaved to the power of Satan and death, and they will endure eternally the flames and the judgment that Polycarp spoke so boldly about. Jesus says, one thing is sure, just wait, wait. That day is coming. The Father has fixed it by his own authority. Jesus will come again, and on that day, wrong will be made right when King Jesus comes in sight. Don't, don't you see? That's exactly why Jesus said what he did to his apostles in verse 8. Jesus' most pressing concern is not merely an earthly kingdom. No, Jesus is interested in something far greater. His concern is a kingdom where all wrong is made right, a kingdom where sin, Satan, and death are destroyed his concern is a kingdom that extends far beyond right now. It extends into eternity. It's a concern of a kingdom that is not just for Israel, but a king that stretches as far as the curse of sin and death are found. That's why he says in verse 8, Apostles, you will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Between my first coming and my second coming, this is your mission. By my power, by my spirit, witness to all creation. Go into all creation and tell them the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the king. 
Come into his kingdom. Receive forgiveness. Receive healing. Because the day is coming, the king will come again the same way you saw him ascend. John Ortberg was a pastor in California, and he wrote a book called Who Is This Man? And in that book, he talks about these final departing words of Jesus. And he, he makes it actually almost comical. He says, think about this scene. There are just 12 or 11 apostles at this point, And Jesus is saying, go into all the earth, expand my kingdom to as far as the curse of sin and death are bound. And he says, it's almost funny. It's almost as if this is what Jesus is doing. It's almost as if Jesus is huddling up his followers and saying, okay, here's our strategy. We have no money. We have no clout, no status, no buildings, no soldiers. Things are going exactly according to plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell them all, every person, you're on the wrong track. You're going down the wrong road. That, that road of Roman power and money and success in this life of earthly power and prestige, that's the wrong road. We're going to tell them all. We're going to tell them all. And when they hate us, and a lot of them will, and when they call us names and throw us into prison to even kill some of us, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to fight back. Because his kingdom is not of this world. We won't run away and we won't give in. Here's what I want you to do. Just keep loving and trusting in me. We will just keep inviting them to join our side. That's my strategy. What do you think? That's Jesus' most pressing concern. Because the day is coming when he will come again the same way that he ascended. Just wait. On that day, the wrong will be made right when King Jesus comes in sight. And in the meantime, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, we pray to you and we believe uh, that you are the eternal Son of God. As we confessed earlier, the King of creation, we believe that you were born of the Virgin Mary. You lived a perfect life in our place. You suffered under Pontius Pilate, were crucified, died, and were buried. You descended into hell. You took the wrath of God for sin in our place. And we also believe that you rose again from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures. And we believe, Jesus, you ascended into heaven and are seated at the right hand of power, the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And you, Jesus, will come again to judge the living and the dead, and your kingdom will have no end. Jesus, that's what you came to do. You've come to set people like us free from our fears and sins. And one day, all creation will hail the power of your name. So Jesus, we pray, please give us your spirit to be faithful in this fallen world. Help us, help us believe these things. We believe, Jesus, but help our unbelief. Help us by your spirit to walk by faith, not by sight. Give us eyes for your kingdom, which is not of this world and which one day will cover the ends of the earth as far as the curse is found. We pray this all in your majestic and holy name. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs>